Thank you for listening to the George Reister podcast presented by the Unafraid Show, where we talk about faith, family, fatherhood, food, and sports, where all those great things combine the things that I care about that I know that you care about as well. Please make sure that you share the podcast with a friend. Don't just share it with one friend, share it with two, three, four friends, because we interview great people talking about interesting things that you didn't know about them and learning and insight to make your life and my life better. Please leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can find me on Twitter at George Reister or shoot me an email, gwpodcast at unafraidshow.com. And of course, I always tag our guests in there. We can have a fantastic discussion. But our guest today, my friend, former NFL veteran, seven years, TV personality, and the coordinator for student athlete development at the University of San Diego. This man has one of the most famous plays in Miami Dolphins history. He's a Stanford graduate. This is an intelligent human being. He's a great father, great husband. So much to add. And he was an undrafted free agent in the NFL. Didn't even have a scholarship offer coming out of high school, but he made it. So much to offer us today. Let's get to it. Greg Camarillo, my man. What's up? How you doing, brother? I'm doing well, Reister. How are you? Man, I'm doing good, man. I mean, I... I if if I had yo your hands, I cut my hands off. <laughs> you over there living, you have the perfect life with the perfect wife, the perfect kid. Like how how did you do this? Man, it just you know it got lucky, man. I can't I can't lie. I uh, met a good woman, turned into a good life, and you know football paved part of that way for me. But it's just things have worked out well, and I, I'm appreciative of that. Okay, you are what what is your ethnicity because because a lot of people they would look at you and they think that you check the other box or you might be a white guy but then then you hear the last name Camarillo where do you belong that's a good question I don't belong in many groups uh I I belong in the the very small box called the Mexi Jew so I am Mexican and Hungarian my father's Mexican and Catholic my mother is Hungarian Jewish uh, so I am a mix of the two, and it makes me a Mexi Jew. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the first time that I heard that. But the the Mexi Jew, how did the Mexi Jew meet the black woman that you are married to? Because that <laughs> don't seem like the social circle that, you know, that y'all were floating in. It's you know the standard romance story. You go to Las Vegas with your with your uh, with your boys <laughs> and your family. <laughs> get drunk at the club shout out to club opium and caesars and bay area sunday nights and there was a pretty young lady you know i had a little bit of courage juice flowing through the veins and um started a conversation and and i could spend probably 30 minutes telling this story but to keep it short we made out in the club separated ways didn't see her for for a year tried to keep in contact she didn't want to you know just talk with the guy that she kissed in the club a year later when i was uh a free agent with the Chargers. I went out my very first night out in San Diego, spent my whole night in a bar. Everyone clears out at 2 a.m. in San Diego. I sit down on a bench waiting for my homies, and here she is sitting right next to me. What? Yeah, gave me a chance to uh, to 
to rekindle that the flame. Did you know it was her as soon as you saw her? In, immediately. So her, her maiden name is Green, Sharon Green. And I grew up near the Sharon Green apartment. So I'm terrible with names. But because of that, I had it locked in. I looked at her. I was like, Sharon Green? And she knew exactly who I was. And, and it, it's not like that sparked the flame when we got married right then. It took me a couple of years to, 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 uh, to convince her that, that I was the right guy. And then a couple of years later, we're, we're uh, engaged. We're married. Now we're living in San Diego with three little girls. So how, how on earth? So I, I know that interracial relationships, that they can be tough, that you get these looks because my wife is, she grew up thinking that she was like, you know, full, like 50, 50 black, black and white, got the ancestry DNA.com found her. She was like 27%. So, and I noticed when we're at, black or yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I uh, so sometimes when we're out, I get I get them looks like oh <laughs> look at look at the black guy with the white girl, <laughs> that's so, no seriously, yeah, and I'm yeah. just like bro, I got I got a good one. You can't shame me. Yeah, so yeah. What is your what kind of experiences have you had with that? You know, I I really haven't had many negative experiences. Nothing that that comes to me. You know, nothing that's directed at me. But there are times where I see someone that's being unnecessarily rude to her and it, and it opens my window. Something as, you know, I, I look white. A lot of people think I'm Italian. Uh, something in my life that I don't experience because it's a white privilege that people treat me as a white, as a white man in this society. But there's people that will be unnecessarily rude to her. And you, you can never say flat out that was just a racist person, but it happens enough where I can start to understand what minorities in this country feel, you know, what happens to them on a daily or weekly basis. Uh, and it's really a, it been an eye-opening experience. Yeah. And, and how about your daughters? Because I, I was a guy as a dark-skinned guy growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, you always thought that like light-skinned people had it, had it easy. But when you come to come find out, like they were teased, called all sorts of names, all of this. And I'm just like, I thought y'all was just like living, living out here. Cool. Like everything was dope. And yeah. like, have your daughters experienced anything? People calling them names or, you know, or people no, say anything? I mean, they're, they're seven, five and two years old. So, you know, there, there hasn't been much, much exposure to that. Um, but what's, what's really interesting is how the genetics mix and match when it comes to children. So we've got three little girls and each one looks a little bit different than the other. So our, our, our first one, is, it has uh, darker brown skin, uh, curlier hair, you know, clearly mixed with black. Um, so she's our black child. My, the second one looks more <laughs> like my family. She has wavy hair, uh, much lighter skin. Um, She's our she's she's our Jewish child, yeah. and then the third one is right there in between. She's our Puerto Rican. <laughs> so, so when people go, so when y'all go places, do people think that like that you guys are all related, or are they like, yeah. oh, that that's the adopted child over? No, here. no, they. I mean, they look enough alike where where you could tell they're sisters. Uh, and then when you see mom and dad, it's clear it's a mix of the two. Uh, but but the interesting thing that you know society is going to see them well probably at least two of the three but maybe all three of them they're going to see them as black women and, and yeah. that's just how america works if you are half you are most likely going to be labeled as african-american 
Yeah. And so, you know, I've, I've done a lot of reading on it. My wife's done a lot of reading on it. And I think what we've learned is the key to success is just to talk about it. Like my daughter yeah. knows I'm African-American. She's proud of that. She knows she's Mexican. She's proud of that. She knows she's Hungarian Jewish. She's proud of that. We celebrate Christmas. We celebrate Kwanzaa, which we had to Google how to do that. But we, but we figured <laughs> hey, it out. whatever you got to get it done, man. <laughs> and we celebrate Hanukkah. And so, you know, we uh, we play Beyonce song, the brown skinned girl, and they're real proud of that. So uh, our goal is just to be very open and upfront about it, talk about it, and, and, and hopefully develop a sense of pride in all three of their backgrounds. See, I think that's that that's dope because people get so caught up in, oh, I fit in this box. I, I, I don't identify here. I do identify there. But I think that, you know, when you give your, your kids that total culture, cultural experience and just let them just love and live, you know, Absolutely. just and just just be free. But you talked about something earlier with like white privilege. Yeah. And but there are so many people that don't want to acknowledge that that exists. So mm -hmm. how do you navigate that? And like, like, is there like, because I don't understand, I understand the concept of like white guilt, but I, yeah. you know, like, how do you deal with that as it relates to you and your family? Yeah. Um, you know, and this is something that I've thought about a lot and, and something that I've read about a lot. I come from a unique background and unique perspective on it being half Mexican, half white, a father who clearly has brown skin, a mother who's, who has white skin. And then myself, I have a Hispanic last name, but if you were to look at me, you're probably going to guess that I'm white, you know, and anytime I get pulled over, which is rare because I have white privilege, I, the, the ticket identifies race as white. Uh, and so I have, I get treated as a white man in America, which, which I'm half a white, I'm half white. So it's totally fine. But, uh, we're walking through the neighborhood, my whole family and my dad and my dad's out in front and like the neighbor accosts my dad, like, uh, excuse me, sir, can I help you? Like, she would never say that to me or anyone <laughs> Yeah, you look like you belong there. But because he's a Mexican man walking through this neighborhood and she doesn't know him, she's going to question him and see what he's doing. So um, it's a unique perspective where I have been able to benefit from the privilege while still being able to see it not apply to others to see the oppression of others and and i don't really i wouldn't say i have white guilt but i have an understanding of the privileges that i've had and my goal is to try to level the players playing field as much as possible and that's by creating opportunities for everyone so i work in college athletics and, and my my goal one of my goals is to support our minority student athletes and give them the best experience possible because I'm a believer that education is is the route to creating more equality. So uh, my goal with community service, my goal with my job is to create opportunities for um, racial minorities. Well, so so when you bring them up and, and, and helping them given more opportunities, I think that one of the things that people don't realize for minority students going to college is, uh, unless you go to an HBCU, you are in the vast minority like mm -hmm. like you are going to school with people that don't come from the places that you come from all of that and like for for me it was easier because I went to Oregon and there weren't many black kids there but all the black kids they we were playing ball so mm -hmm. you had an instant friend group and it wasn't 
and people wanted to be around you and embrace you because you were an, an athlete. So I didn't experience that. Like what's your experience with the kids in college? Because I know it's different today than it was, you know, back in 99 when I checked in. Yeah. And very different. And, and, you know, I would assume that for someone in 99 in Oregon, an African-American student that was not a football player, everyone would have assumed that they were at college because they were a football player. That's fair. (laughs) That comes up a lot is people, you know, you, someone will be like, well, what sports do you play? And it has nothing to do with why that person's in college. Um, But nowadays, so I work at the university of San Diego, a small private school that is absurdly expensive. It's like 60 grand a year. Um, And a lot of kids are coming from, private high schools because it's the same pathway of people that can afford private high schools that afford these private uh, colleges and and it is a vast majority white and it's unwelcoming it's uncomfortable it's not home or it doesn't feel like home for a lot of not just my black students hispanic students really anyone that's also a first generation college student um and, and just not being comfortable in class, raising your hand, feeling like eyes are on you. It just, it doesn't create a good experience. Uh, and that's what um, a lot of colleges are starting to recognize and do things for We've got like San Diego State is, oh gosh, I'm gonna mess this up, but a Hispanic serving institution or something like that, where, where you, once you reach a certain threshold of Hispanic students, you get labeled as a Hispanic serving institution. And so colleges are realizing now that um, there's a need to support our first generation students, need to support our racial minority students because just being there is a tough experience. So you got to give them extra support to get them through. So do you think that it's more racial or do you think it's more socioeconomic? Uh, racial. I mean, clearly socioeconomic is a part of that. But if a poor white person goes to college, they can blend in as a white person. As if a black person goes to college, there's a good chance in that classroom, they are gonna be the only black person, whether they're a poor black person or a rich black person. And then that is gonna create that difference. That's gonna gonna, gonna make them feel separated, make others notice that, that there's only one of that type of person in that classroom. Um, so granted, if you are coming from a poor household, you have difficulties with college as well, or there's a good chance yeah. you will. But a white person that's poor can blend in better and, and kind of float by better than than a racial minority can. Yeah, because it's it's one of one of those things because I noticed that when when kids are at college, especially at elite universities like you went to, you went to Stanford, you turned down Harvard, and and from people that I know that went to Stanford who were my minorities because I got a privilege of going to a I had a scholarship to go to an elite private high school here in um in the valley went to school with the kardashians the jacksons the hiltons like all, all, all of them bro. Right <laughs> <laughs> and it was just and so but some of the people that weren't affluent they weren't they went off to a college they two two specific ones one went to harvard the other one went to stanford and they were excellent students but people assumed that because they were there that they got it oh it's affirmative action like you're just mm-hmm. here because of this and not like you earned your way here just like everybody else. Yeah, and um, I mean, as studies have shown that uh, the academic path is harder for 
racial minorities, that these, um, particularly students that have a socioeconomic disadvantage as well, that things like the SATs where uh, most of the people that were at your high school have SAT tutors, and, and I had yeah. them as well. So let me not speak like, like I am one of these people that didn't benefit from this situation, but uh, I had SAT prep books. I had SAT yeah, tutors. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> That's going to make your score go up. Yeah. Uh, I had uh, a dad with a PhD, a mom with a master's degree. That's going to help my GPA go up. And if you look at percentages, most more white people have those advantages than racial minorities do. And that's what's going to create that difference. See, see I, I think that the biggest thing there is like the, the lessons that are taught at home, especially when it comes to finances, because if your parents are professionals, they don't have to necessarily teach you all these lessons about money like you see it. You hear your mom and dad talk about investing. You hear their friends talk about it, owning property, you know, not, you know, budgeting, all, all of this stuff that you don't hear when you are come from a poor background. Like, yeah. it's totally different. And you can ask for advice. Like, if, if uh, like, going to college when I needed to fill out a, 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 a loan form, my mom knew how to do that. If she hadn't been to college, if she didn't, uh, you know, never been in that situation, who knows if I ever would have been able to have that money, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so you're right, 100%. Having a family that is aware of finances, that's been through these things before, is a huge advantage. Yeah. So you ended up going to Stanford and you turned down Harvard. Why Stanford? All right. So uh, I grew up in the Bay Area. Um, spring break of my, must have been my senior year. I went on a college trip. So I was going to go check out a few colleges, Harvard, Penn, where my brother was. And then I was meeting my boys in Miami for a little spring break action. And so, you know, being from California, I figured I'll just throw on a hoodie. I'm good. I'm golden. So uh, <laughs> I get to Boston in April. Didn't realize how cold Boston was. And yeah, it, bro, it's cold as it's cold as a witch's titties. Out. Yeah. <laughs> it's freezing. And then their football team practices at 6 a.m. So here I am, a California kid with a small little hoodie outside on a frozen football field at 6 a.m. in Boston, freezing my ass off. And there was no way that I was going to be able to go to college, wake up at 6 a.m. in frozen, literally frozen ground and go play football. Uh, so that knocked that off the list. Uh, and then really, Stanford was my only chance to play Division I football. Um, my dad was a professor there. I grew up on Stanford Avenue. I spent literally my entire life in and around Stanford and Stanford athletics. Um, and so originally I wanted to get away. I thought, let me go try the East Coast. Let me see some other schools. Wasn't recruited much for football, but then the opportunity to go to Stanford and then the chance to play big time football, I, I had to take it. You know, I had to jump on it and it turned out to be an amazing decision. But you were a punter. I was a punter slash receiver. So I was, I was a good, a good receiver in high school, like all conference, but I was slow. Couldn't really jump. Wasn't very strong. Like things that don't get you college. <laughs> and, uh, and, and your, and your uh, paint job didn't help you out very much. No, either. no, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Uh, and so uh, I had already been admitted to the school and I had a good leg. Like I could kick a field goal. I could punt. And so I got a meeting with him, uh, a meeting with Tyrone Willingham, the head coach there. And just to, to show you the time or the era that it was, I brought my VHS highlight tape 
and plugged it in for him. <laughs> hey, that's smart. You were prepared. I was prepared. So I had my receiver highlights first. I was the defensive end. I had my defensive end highlights second, and then my kicking and punting. And he was like, you know, you've already been admitted to school. We can offer you a, a walk-on spot as a punter. And I was like, you know, I really like to play receiver too. And he's like, yeah, we may as well give you a shot at both. So I was a receiver slash punter. So you go there, you you show up on on campus, and you go out to practice punting slash receiving. When did you figure out? Oh wait, hold up, I can play a little bit. Not immediately, that's for sure. So the very first thing we did was like an NFL NFL style combine, and so we had a rookie class of eighteen, and I'm the I'm about the seventeenth guy to go on bench press, and every single dude before me have been able to put up 225 knowing I couldn't do it I was too embarrassed to say I need to go to 185 and I tried my damnedest but I, I got 225 of about about three inches off my chest and collapsed so it was not that moment I was I was by far the walk-on punter at that moment oh uh, you were still better than me when I got to school I benched 155 no yep. no yes dude I was a top flight recruit as a tight end had basketball scholarships, <laughs> everything, bro. Oh, I just, Reister. I was anti weight room, bro. Oh man, glad that I, changed. I I, I left close to about I, I left close to about four hundred though. What did you What did you weigh? Uh, when I got there, like two twenty five. Damn it, Roy, Reister. Oh man, all right. Well, there you go. I would have been ahead of you. <laughs> Uh, so, so, so to go back to your question, the, the one great thing about being at a, at a big time program, but being at the bottom of, of the, uh, the roster of the death chart, you get to play against the first team. So you are getting to refine your skills against the best. And so I had to learn how to quickly develop skills so I could get off the line so I could get open against our best. Um, and so, I mean, I was not a good receiver our first year. I'm not going to lie that. But come year two, uh, I had gotten in a weight room. I could put up 225. And then <laughs> I had learned from watching other people in front of me. Um, a senior when I was there was Troy Walters, who was uh, – yep. sorry. He was the year before me. Deronnie Pitts was okay. my senior year. And just a monster of a receiver. So getting to watch him work helped a lot just – soaking it in like what is this guy doing to be so good maybe I can copy a little bit of that okay so so your first two years you're riding the pine you know uh I, I, you you started playing special teams your your second year right uh a uh, very minimal special teams Okay, so were, did you have one of these scholarship moments where you ended up where they, like, surprised you? It was like, Greg Camarillo, come here. No, You're on scholarship. Almost. And that was, this was before Twitter and Instagram when that really got popular. But the coach had tried to tell my parents as a, as a secret, and then he was going to tell me um, after practice at training camp in front of the team, but a reporter got to me first and kind of spilled the beans without knowing that he was spilling the beans. And so a report, some random reporter that I talked to basically told me that I was on scholarship. So the time coach came around, I already knew what was going on. But did you pretend like you? Uh, like no, you I, told, I told him, but it, I mean, it was still a great moment, man, to go from, I mean, my, so back to the, to the whole privilege factor, my parents were paying for my tuition, so which was, 
probably 45, 50 grand a year yeah. at that point. And then to know that the next three years were totally free. I mean, that, that is like literally winning the lottery. You're 20 years old and you just, you just made 150 grand worth of tuition. That's literally the winning the lottery. Uh, and to know that I did it through, through hard work and opportunity, it, it was, it was a special moment. And then for my teammates to be happy for me, that's really, really what, what brings it on is the enjoy, the enjoyment, the excitement as well as, to see your boys be proud of you uh, and share share it with you. I always wonder, like, I didn't have that experience. You know what I mean? Like, I I went the normal, traditional, had a scholarship already. But you look at those guys, you're all, I was always super happy for them because whoever got the scholarship, you really earned it. Like, you came there with just a wish and a prayer and you earned it. Like, what, what, I guess like what went into that on the days when you weren't eating training table because they weren't feeding you. Oh man. Every, <laughs> while, while everybody else is eating uh, good, you're eating not. Good. And by the time practice was done, the dining hall was closed. Uh, and so my boys would get a second plate from training table and bring it to me. And I would just have to eat off of their meals because that's, that's walk on life. You are in it because you love the sport, not because of the perks. So, I mean, like, what what was your goal to play in the NFL? Or were you just like, I just want to play football still. I'm not ready for it to be done. That's B, option B. That was exactly, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. I never had the goal of playing the NFL. I wasn't recruited for college. You know, like, why would I think I could play in the NFL? I just liked playing football. I liked being on a team. I liked having something to work towards. And so my final three years at Stanford, we sucked. We won 10 games over the course of three years. Yeah, y'all were ass. I, <laughs> <laughs> y'all, were, y'all were bad, hey, bro. I can't argue. I cannot yeah. argue about that. We, we sucked. But what that did is it kept the fire, the flame burning for the desire to keep playing football. So after my senior season, I actually flew to New York on my own dime uh, to try out with the New York Dragons arena football team. So I go out there, I spend three days practicing with, so it's at the Nassau arena. It's like this old hockey arena where we got to like the most bootleg meeting rooms, desks falling apart. The weight room was Gold's Gym, the local Gold's Gym at 6 yeah. So you're in there with the steroid dudes. <laughs> they say the housing is free, but the housing are like these old, it's straight out of a horror movie. So there's a shutdown insane asylum, like old brick building with ivy, like hallways covered in a metal mesh so no one can escape. It's literally abandoned, but there's houses behind it where the caretakers live. That's where the players live. So they put me in there for three days. And like, like if I'd have died right then and there, I would have understood. <laughs> it was literally out of, out of, out of a horror movie. Uh, so I did that for three days and they offered me a contract to come back. And I just, I had a heart to heart with the coach and I, I hadn't finished college. This contract was for 26 grand. And I knew my parents wouldn't go for it. And the coach was like, you know what? That's not a good, go, good move, go finish college. So I decided not to do that. I went and finished college. And then uh, I had several teammates that were trying for the NFL that were going to get drafted. So scouts eyes were going to be on our team and I just went for it and, and very fortunate to get an opportunity to try out with the chargers. And then the rest was history. How did, uh, all right. So what is that life like? Cause you were obviously an undrafted free agent. I think you caught what 45 or 46 balls in four years in college. 
and, and 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 the high was 18 or 19. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I had 19. I think I had less my senior year than my junior year. I want to say it was 19 and 18. Yeah, so so you knew you weren't going to get drafted. Oh, absolutely. 100%. So what what's that life like? You just finish your senior year and you still want to play. You're not going to be drafted and you don't have the numbers to where you're like, am I even going to get an invite to camp? Like, what is that life like? I was just going to give it a shot. So I was still in school that spring semester, but I only had one class. So I had plenty of time to work out. And my whole mindset was I have to try now because if I take a year, if I take a year to go get a job and want to try later, it won't happen. It literally can't happen. So I was just going to give it all, give it my all. Uh, you know, fortunately I had a situation where if shit hit the fan, I could just crash in my parents' house. Uh, I, you know, I didn't need a job right away to pay the bills. Uh, it gave it my all. I trained with my, the other guys that were going to go to the NFL, that were going to get drafted. Um, got the only agent that would take me and gave it a shot. And uh, the only opportunity I got was through a Stanford connection. So James Lofton, a former Stanford receiver and Hall of Fame NFL receiver, was the receivers coach for the San Diego Chargers. Yep. His son, David, was my teammate in college. Uh, so James had been watching our games and had also been known for wanting to give a Stanford guy a shot in camp each year. So the stars just aligned perfectly for me. And James gave me my shot at the tryout. Uh, it, it, and it was enough for me to stick around. Yeah. So did you make the team like as a receiver or a special teams guy? So the first year was practice squad, which was perfect for me because one, I was just excited to be on the team. I thought yeah. it was amazing. Yeah, you I'm, I'm you were getting, pick, pick, picking up that 90K. You was I like, got, I'm on my I'm good. I got a jersey. Um, but, uh, yeah, the first year it was just learning to be a better receiver. Same thing in college, going against the starting defense, running scout team, getting a chance to refine my skills. And in my second year, it was special teams that did it for me. Uh, and, and I was willing to do whatever. So this is in the era of the four-man wedge. And my very Ooh. first – kickoff coverage of my second year I was determined I was going to be one of those special teams guys I went head first into the four-man wedge oh, yeah. I came out head first of the four-man wedge laying on the ground everyone fell over me I got credit for a tackle because I the people just fell on top of me <laughs> but it proved to the coaches one that I was an idiot that I would go in head first but <laughs> that I would do whatever they wanted. You say, you say, go hit that guy. I'm going to go hit that guy. And so that, that, that mentality uh, and willing to do whatever coach wanted got me a spot. See, I, I could never like bring myself to run into the wedge because as a thoughtful person, as a Stanford guy, <laughs> I, would, I would think that you would think this too. You want to hear, all right, you want to hear my thinking? I'll, okay. I'll take you through it. All right, so I was an engineer in college, right? So I, I put on my engineering thinking cap. All right. Force equals mass times acceleration. You with yep. me? F equals MA. These two guys combined, I had to split two guys. They're probably 300 pounds to 350 each. We'll say 600. They're 600 pounds. I'm 200 pounds, give or take. So to equal their force, my mass, which is one third of those, has to be going three times faster. I got that. I can run <laughs> three times faster than these lines. So at basic physics, I had convinced myself that if I go in there three times faster than that, I'm good. <laughs> but the, the reality is that that works great in the classroom. That doesn't work on the field. 
I could never reconcile myself because I, I would always think, hold up, the job on, on kickoff team, because when coaches would say run into the wedge, I would say, how does that make sense? Your job is to tackle the guy. Why do we, who cares about breaking up the wedge? Just tackle him. Take up blockers. That's what they wanted you to do. Take Mm-mm. up blockers. That's why George was never on kickoff team. I mean, it was the right move. I, I learned from that moment forward that I needed to give a little wiggle. Fat guys hate little guys that wiggle. Correct. If I, give, if I give them some wiggle, the fat guys freak out, and then I got a lane. But, you know, it took me one time being a crash test dummy to figure that out. Yeah, that's a, that's a losing proposition. <laughs> so you go and um, you get in the league, obviously, and your first touchdown is, uh, is your most – is your highlight play. Like, you yeah. have a highlight play. An all-time Miami Dolphins, like, when, when they put together a highlight package, your play is on it. Yeah. Like in 2007, you guys were 0 and 13 mm-hmm. playing against the Ravens. You were in overtime and you catch a 64 yard touchdown from Cleo Lemon. Like when that ball was in the air, I, th- I think you ran a post. Yeah, quick post. What, what, what was going through your mind when the ball was in the air and you knew you had a step on the DB and there was no safety to be well, found? Uh, you know, um, I'll take it. I'll take it through a little bit of it to set it up. Going into that game, I had one career catch for two yards. So my my one my career catching was very limited. But clearly, I didn't run anywhere if my if my if I only had two yards yeah. in a career. I, I've never been a fast guy. Never an open field guy. So I got I got that catch. And if you watch, and I tweeted out something like this recently about. Uh, uh, who did the Cowboys? CD, the Cowboys guy drafted CD. They got a, they put up a rookie card of him, and he's look, he's breaking away from a crowd. Looking oh yeah, up, looking up at the scoreboard, and that's what an experienced runner does. They look up at the scoreboard to see if someone is chasing them. Yeah, I am. I am not an experienced runner, so <laughs> I am running like somebody with a bat is chasing me. I am. <laughs> I probably spend one fifth of my time looking in front of me and every other moment I'm, I'm like a scared little kid looking over left shoulder right shoulder <laughs> don't shoulder. get caught don't, don't catch me don't catch me literally had the thought like when I'm somewhere around the 30 like okay if I get tackled we're in field goal range that actually went through my head while <laughs> uh, but it just it was overtime and, and the guy chasing me had played more than me and he was tired and and fortunately I, I ran like a scared little boy and, and we made it in the end zone and what were you what were you thinking when you got in the end zone? Man, that's a great question. I don't know. So so I didn't tell anyone this, but a reporter uncovered it. I had not scored a touchdown since high school. Literally didn't What? Score, yeah, literally didn't score a touchdown in college. I had one ball thrown to me. I dove for it and dropped it. Still still mad about it, but that's that's not the point. I it had been so long since I'd been in the end zone. I didn't know what to do. So I just, I just ran to the little wall. We celebrated with the crowd. People were throwing beer on us. We got a, uh, John Beck was a, a BYU quarterback that was on that team who as a Mormon guy has never had a sip of alcohol. And he said, as he was running into the dog pile, a drop of the fans beer got into his mouth. And that was the first and only time he drank. And I was his drinking partner. He was like, Oh no, no. <laughs> It'd be, it'd be, it'd be like uh, a, a Jewish person, you know, scoring, scoring a touchdown and a fan like drops a hot dog and it hits him on the <laughs> lip or something. Yeah. <laughs> like be yeah, horrified. Man. 
Messing up my kosher life, man. Exactly, exactly. Um, you are, uh, to transition just to you more as a person, though, you are a girl dad. And, no, and I know I'm that you dad. are proud of that, right? No, I'm a dad. I am a hashtag dad. Kobe, Kobe said you're a girl dad, dude. All right, so you know, I had I also had a little Twitter. It was on, trending. On this. It was trending. It Why was, didn't you want to be part of it? So, so this let me. Oh man, let me give you the whole spiel. All right, we're good with that. So right. this is no disrespect to Kobe, and I understand that the girl dad is is sending a positive message. But this is the problem I have with it. So I got three daughters, right? And almost all the time, I shouldn't. I shouldn't even say that. Like once a month. I'm with my daughters and someone always says, are you going to keep trying for that son? And so the message it sends to my daughters is they're not good enough. Are you going to try for a son? Because in, 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 in archaic times, a man needing a son to carry on his legacy. That's the background to it. So to me, the girl dad hashtag is men celebrating that they are a dad to their daughter on the surface amazing i'm with that be a good dad to your daughter but why is there not a boy dad hashtag there's a boy mom why is there not a girl mom hashtag we're only celebrating it because a dad is doing it looks like he's going above and beyond and being proud of having a daughter why are you not just proud of having a daughter of which you do things with you don't see a dad posting with his son talking about boy dad you being a dad to your daughter, you being a dad of a girl is your job. You should not get a pat on the back for being proud of playing basketball with your daughter. And this is, you know, maybe just a little, a little animosity there because I have three daughters and people always throw it out there like, when's the son coming? I don't need my son. I'm good. Uh, and so I, I just look at it like I'm a dad. I'm not a girl dad. If I had a son, I'd be doing the same exact thing. I'm a dad. Okay, that that makes sense. I totally disagree with you, but <laughs> but what you're, it, you know, like that that's when you are a very thoughtful person. When I can, what you're saying makes one hundred percent sense. It's logical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just I, I'm after you finish. I'm just like Greg. Who hurt you? <laughs> I mean, it's it's just it's you know the thought that you need a son. Well, I mean, those are two different things, really. It's just. It, to me, it's just, just why do you have to be proud of the fact that you are taking care of your daughter when it is your job to take care of your daughter? Yeah. Yeah. I, now, now that I do subscribe to, and I will admit, I fell victim to the, like that way of thinking. Like my, my oldest, my firstborn was a son. So I felt that sense of pride. Like, oh, yes, yes, I, I have a boy. And so I always do wonder for, for guys like you, guys like Kobe, you, you know, other, uh, other people I know, I'm like, don't you want a boy? <laughs> you know? I mean, yeah. And, and when we had, so we had two girls first and then with the third child, we took a while to find out. That's a whole nother story. My wife didn't find out till birth. I snuck a peek at the ultrasound and knew it was a girl, but it, it for me, and I'm a guest for other people as well. You want to experience both. I would love to experience raising yeah. a boy as much as if I had two boys, I would love to experience raising a girl. Yeah. Uh, it's totally different, by the way. I, I could imagine. Yeah, yeah. We were wired differently. You know, we literally yeah. have different, different uh, hormones and chemicals flowing through our blood. Uh, but 
it when I saw when I saw the third ultrasound that said it's a girl, it took a couple of days to get used to the idea that I was not going to raise a son. I knew that this was my last child going into it. Um, and, and, you know, just like like anything in life where you have expectations or thoughts like I would like to experience that once that kid came out, man, I couldn't be happier with three kids. And anyone that has three kids will tell you it really doesn't matter what you get, what you have. But it did take me a couple minutes to realize, a couple days to, to kind of wrestle with the fact that I wasn't going to have a son. Yeah, no, see that that makes sense. And just seeing like Kobe and the way that his daughter, uh, Gigi, the, the the way that she, uh, when everybody would ask him that, and she would respond like, "He don't need no son. He got me." Like, and <laughs> that was yeah, the part. Yeah. It really opened my eyes up. I was like, "Geez, like." she's seen this and like, yes, yes, you, yeah, I want a, I want a son. There's that macho part of you, but just cause you have a son don't mean that he's the one. Don't, no. <laughs> it don't mean that he's, he's LeBron. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it's true. And it, it's a, there is no reason that a little girl can't carry on my legacy. And I know that sounds like an egotistical thing to say as well, but you know, my girls can make me just as proud as any little boy could. Oh, for sure. For sure. Um, your, your, your life at, uh, you know, as a, as a Stanford man, you are, um, you know, you have like, well, actually I'll, I'll just get directly to the, to the question. <laughs> what is it like when you tell people I went to Stanford? Like, do, do people treat you differently? Do they assume mm. that you're smarter? Yes and no. So yeah, well, yes. The answer is yes. They assume that that they're smarter, but in the football world, you'd be surprised at how often it backfires. So if somebody messes up a play or forgets, you know, the snap count in football, you just be like, you yell at him and you move on. If a Stanford guy fucks up something on a football field, <laughs> come on, Mister Stanford, Smart. you're supposed to be the smartest guy in the world. You got to know everything. And so it backfires in the football world, but uh, you know it, it is. It is. Uh, I mean, it's something I'm proud of. And, it, and it's Stanford. It's not as though the individuals that go to Stanford are the sharpest people in the world. I mean, there are some, granted, but um, you know the hardest part. They say the hardest part is getting in. Once you're in, like there are. I've met a lot of smart people that weren't admitted or didn't try to get admitted that would have done totally fine there. But it just it, it, it fosters this environment where it's cool or it's acceptable to be a nerd. And yeah. that's, that's what I really liked about it. And that's kind of what I carry along with it. They'd be like, oh, you went to Stanford, you're a nerd? Yes, I am. Proud of it. I use my force equals math times acceleration on the football field. <laughs> Dude, I w so I took a graduate like business class there at Stanford through the NFL. And I remember being up there on campus I was like, it just felt different. Like it, it's an energy. And I don't an think energy. that people really understand that it's a, I, it's just a creative juices are just flowing there. Yeah. That's why Silicon Valley is there. It's, it's almost like a something in the water kind of, kind of deal. Yeah. And, and that's, that's one reason I love working at a college campus. Cause every college campus has that to some level, everybody is there to do to better themselves. They yeah. like being in education. They like learning. They like advancing themselves. But at Stanford, I mean, there's, there's so many bright minds around. 
that's part of the allure of going there is the people that you meet, the people that you're going to connect with. Uh, and, it, and then they also have their endowment of however many bazillion dollars allows yeah. them to make these beautiful, inspiring buildings, build these laboratories, build these computer science labs. So yeah. you are just surrounded by every resource in the world. And that also is inspiring, just being around it. So is, is your Stanford network, like, has that worked for you? Obviously, it helped you get a spot in the, well, a tryout in the NFL. But in your post-career life, has it, that network helped you either, you know, in finding jobs, in landing careers, business opportunities, investments, anything like that? That's a great question. Um, I mean, the, the, it's def- it definitely helps me. I, I, I actually got my first job offer from someone who went to Cal, who is our bitter rival. Um, so that, that network is the opposite of what worked for me. But uh, I mean, it's just the people that I could stay connected with are inspiring people. And it, it's, you know, there's like, uh, we go to a reunion and this lady's a neurosurgeon and it's just like, wow, like, you know, you're doing such great things with your life. It inspires me to try to take my, what I'm doing to the next level as well. But I mean, if, I've only had one job post football, so I haven't needed to search. But if I do search, I'm absolutely going to use that network. Oh, dude, it probably it probably is pretty easy when easier when you turn in that application like, oh, Stanford. Oh, yeah, we'll we'll at least for sure bring him in for an interview. It definitely doesn't hurt. I'll tell you that they're not going to look at it and be like, yeah, you know what? Screw this guy. (laughs) So you were a three time uh, academic, all Pac-12. I just want, I'm sorry, all Pac-10. Just wanted yeah. to get that in. I, I've always wondered, how do people make the all Pac-10 academic list? Because I always thought that it was like a combination of sports and football, but you weren't I doing much in football. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, they just use that to, to give the smart guy something to, something to deal with. Uh, I don't know. To be honest with you, I, I got good grades. I was an engineer, and I, and I did engineering just because I liked it. Um, I like doing well at school. It was just a, a challenge to me that I accepted it. It lit I me mean, clearly all, all academic Pac-10 and all Pac-10 are two very different pools. Yeah. Because I wasn't winning any football awards. That's for sure. Well, you, you are winning some awards right, right now because your, your wife, bro, when she talks <laughs> about you, like you hung the fucking moon, bro. And I'm like, I, and, and, um, Sharon always says glowing things about you. And I'm just sitting over here playing, playing catch up. You built your kids playset, And my, <laughs> and my wife's like, George, why don't, why, why don't you build our play playset instead of outsourcing it? That's that engineering mind, man. I like, I like, I love home Depot. Let me just put that out there. I love home Depot. Any excuse I can do to get to Home Depot. That's the one thing I'm missing the most in this pandemic. I want to go to Home Depot. So you're Mr. DIY. Absolutely. I installed a uh, garbage disposal today. Ours was leaking. Ordered one on Amazon. It was here the next day. Boom. Garbage disposal's working. Oh, bro. Our our garbage disposal would be broken until we could have <laughs> someone in, in our home. <laughs> and I mean, my wife yeah. would be shit talking me like, George, why can't, why can't you do it? And I'm like, but can, can, can every man cook a, a smoke, a smoke a brisket, cook some pulled pork 18, 16 hours and it'd be nope. delicious. No, 
I couldn't do it. And, it, and I also couldn't host a, a, a podcast properly. But if, I, <laughs> if you need your garbage disposal fixed, I got you. <laughs> so how, how is, like, what is your key to being a good husband? Like, what do you, I mean, because that, because being being married is is hard but it's yeah. great it's weird because it's it's hard but it's fantastic at the same time if you're married to a good woman yeah oh yeah it's i mean well, uh one great quote that i that i don't know where it come from came from we'll give my wife credit for this one that's part of being a good, a good <laughs> marriage. marriage is not 50 50 marriage is 100 100 and, and and to me that's something that you got to give your all like you got to give your full energy to your wife, your family, your kids, not 50, and then let your wife give in 50. You give 100, she gives 100, and it'll make it work. Uh, it's also, well, you know the saying, happy wife, happy life, you know? Yeah. That, that is clearly a clutch one. Knowing what your partner needs as far as support and love is big. You know, the book, The Five Love Languages, it's, it's similar to that. They talk about speaking her love language, knowing what she identifies as care and love but to me it's about knowing what that person needs for support the most and, and the say goes goes both ways she knows how to support me i know how to support her uh and when you know everyone argues everyone goes through tough times yeah we can fix it because i know what she needs to get it fixed and then she knows what i need to get it fixed and it's just understanding and supporting I think one of the hardest things that for, for us being, being married was we were two individuals for a long time before we got married. So it's like, how do you deal with uh, when you have, when a decision has to be made mm -hmm. and you guys disagree, like mm -hmm. how do you balance being, being right? Like, no, this is going the way I want it. Mm -hmm. and and she's gonna be pissed off about it mm -hmm. you know how how do you get through that because i think that that's the toughest thing for men to deal with a lot of times and when to give be, in you don't be right <laughs> you're wrong <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's it's uh you you just gotta pick your battles man there's very few things where you, you gotta swallow your pride it's simple as that like this is not about me it's it's about our marriage it's about our family what is best for that situation and me wanting to be right or me being stubborn in that moment, is that worth an argument? Is that worth a couple of days of, of yelling at each other? No, it's not worth it. At least, at least not for me. So if, if, if there is a situation where I feel like I'm right, then I'm going to explain why I'm right. But yeah. if there's also a glimmer, any shot that maybe I'm not seeing this the right way, well, let me stop and see what this looks like from the other side. And, you know, if, if it takes me to come a little bit towards the middle or her to come a little bit towards the middle, I feel like that's just a thing of maturity. You know, can you be mature enough to realize that you don't need to be right all the time? That was great advice. I hate you. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, because I think that as men, that that's something that we deal with that's difficult because we have the that macho nature like no like i'm i'm the man i run this house like i i gotta show my dominance every now and then and i think sometimes we miss mistake you know kind of happy wife happy life with being a doormat you know or yeah, or, or yeah. i mean but it also depends on who you marry i married a very strong woman that's not going for any of that yeah and so you know if 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 i was if i was the type of man that when I put my foot down, 
this is what goes on in this household because I make money, then I married the wrong person because that's not going to fly. And if yeah. that's what I would- Me too, bro. Yeah, I mean, I wasn't looking for that. And so uh, that's not me. That's not how the, my parents demonstrated a marriage. Uh, and so that, it would, that would not work. Me walking in this house and being like, we're cutting back on the budget. I put my foot down and she would look at me like, you been talking to George again. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, because a, a couple of uh, somebody literally sent me when they met Denisha, they sent me a video of coming to America. They said <laughs> where they're where they're playing with the canes. They said, you say you have a woman that obey your every command, but you rather have a woman who has an opinion. <laughs> Yep. 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 And that's what I chose. Bark like a dog. A small dog. <laughs> what kind of music do you like? Whatever the music you like. Yeah, right. My 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 wife would fall down dead before and, she And that's why our wives get along, man. There's equal <laughs> minds, you know. Oh Lord. Um well, you are a, a great man, great. So what, what is your compass for that? Because a lot of people use, for uh, me, it's my faith. Like, it's my, my parents have been married for 40 years, grew up in church. Like, my, my faith is, like, paramount to, you know, like, guiding my decisions and my anchor. So mm -hmm. what's that for you? The great question, and, and I, am, I am not a religious man. I, I don't identify with any faith. Um, I don't know if I've ever been to, to a church, a temple, a synagogue for a standard religious ceremony. Weddings, something like that, yeah. But, yeah. Um, so, I, so I am the, the polar opposite of someone that abides by a, a book as far as the moral code. Uh, and to me, it's just my parents raised me to be a good person. And my definition of a good person aligns a lot with the major religions, the Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and what they define as a, as a good person as well. And, and I think it's just my parents set that example. And, my, and um, you know, the, the, little, the little mind in your head knows when you're doing something that is not making you a good person. And to me, my parents, it was about always trying your best, always being honest, and then uh, being kind to others. So, so you, and, and it's an example they, they always led. They had always been about community service. They had always been about uplifting others. Uh, they had always been about manners and being polite. And it's just, that's, I think, through family is what established my, my moral code. And served me well I'm not saying I'm the, I'm the greatest person in the world because I've done some dumb shit too but yeah. it uh you know it, I don't think religion isn't the answer for me yeah and I have no problem with it being the answer for other people whatever it is that guides you in a moral right direction soak it in you know use yeah. it and use that for your kids my wife um doesn't identify with a certain religion but is a is a person of faith that believes in God and uh, prays with our kids at night and it's fun for me to watch them develop that and it, even though that's not something I do but I can see it have an effect on the kids and I like that so when when you have those hard times or something goes goes wrong or bad in 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 life like where do you turn for like that hope that that inspiration and you know to like to like where 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 people do turn to their their faith to you know, help them have hope in hopeless situations. Yeah. 
to me, it's always just been about a belief in myself and a belief in, in my ability to work and power through things. And it's, um, you know, if, if at the end of a day or at the end of a certain amount of time, I look myself in the mirror and it's to me is, am I doing the right thing? Am I working hard enough? And I can answer that honestly. And if I'm going through a tough time, I got to think to myself, am I doing the best to get out of this tough time? Um, and, and fortunately, I, you know, I've been blessed with a wonderful life where I haven't had too many moments where like I felt despair, uh, retiring, yeah. retiring from football and having an identity struggle was one of them. Um, and so just like, just like anyone else, I just, I, well, I shouldn't say just like anyone else. For me, I look inward in times of struggle and think to myself, you know, what can I be doing to, to help myself get out of this? Okay. Like, I think that that's legit because a lot of times when people don't have faith, they don't, you know, you know, when they go through very hard times, they're, they're lost in the tall grass. Yeah. And, and I think that your, your parents, the way that they taught you and raised you, that that did help you in that situation. And I think that that's why it's so important for people to have both parents and have people who are like loving surrounding them because when, when kids are abused, when they're, you know, molested, any of that, like that can like reshape your, mm -hmm. your moral compass, your like hope, all, all of that. And you deal with that as a, as a counselor in a college, like how do you help these young, young men, like, and, and women, like feel, you know, that come from other backgrounds that feel like they're loved and like they have hope and that there is something better. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like you said, that, that household of two parents and a stable background, it is the foundation. So if you're building a house, if you've got a flat solid foundation, it's just going to be easier to build that house, but you can still build a house without that foundation. Yeah. It's going to be a little more work. Yeah. You're going to have to do something differently but you can still end up with the same thing. And that's, um, you know, what I try to do is just provide support as much as possible. And, and it doesn't just necessarily mean me. Like today I had a, a student that was going through a real tough time with a family member that passed away and she was struggling. And, I, and my job was just to support her, at, at, you know, and help her academically. But I know where my limits are is she needed a mental health counselor someone that could really coach you through that. And it's, you know, it, it, even, you know, if you come from a stable home with two parents, you are still going to have some struggles as well. It's not, yeah. you're not immune to it. You may have a few less, uh, but knowing where you can get help and not being afraid to ask for help, you know, and that's, that's, this is going to go off on a tangent, but that's the problem where a lot of football players have is we have this mindset where I can handle this. I can work harder don't tell anyone put my nose down and grind and that works for football and physical injuries but that doesn't work for mental health problems that doesn't work for uh depression things like that yeah because i i always say that we we weren't as mentally fit as we were physically fit that enough time wasn't spent developing our character and you know and conflict resolution skills and all of this that was spent developing our our physical attributes and mistaking toughness with mental health like those aren't the same thing and then having to be able to drop that pride and say you know what mm -hmm. i do need some help i think that that's probably the strongest thing that you can actually do 
Yep. And knowing you're not invisible. I think, I think we're getting there. You know, colleges are focusing on it a lot. Um, all athletic departments have mental health teams that, you know, to support that, but it's just breaking that stigma of, of being an example where, um, you're not afraid to ask for help. So it, I teach a class for freshman student athletes at the University of San Diego. And on the very first day, I introduced this topic where every student at the end of, throughout the semester, at the end of every class, two students are gonna stand up and they got three minutes to tell us something personal that we cannot Google about them. Yeah. And I started off by reading this diary that I wrote in the time that I mentioned to you when I retired from football, where I was struggling with the concept that I was 30 years old and felt like I had already experienced all the highs in my life, what was going to be next that could even compare. And so yeah. I read them this diary yeah. and it explains that I was struggling. Like I was in a bad place. Uh, I had, I had depressive thoughts and that's okay. And it, and it, it does a great job of getting my students to open up because everyone has had some sort of moment yeah. where they're like, you know, things aren't right right now. Um, but it's just being open enough, being uh, not being too proud to say that you have a problem and being mature enough to seek some help. Yeah. When I didn't know that I was depressed when I got out of the, the after I got out the league, it was weird for me because I saw it and I was like, wow, like, you know, it, it's like low grade because you are still you're you're going through life. I could not watch the NFL because mm -hmm. I went out on an on an injury. I still with my with my neck, but the rest of me could still play. I just couldn't yeah, get cleared yeah. to play. Uh -huh. So it was hard because I, I was like, I can still play. And so that was just so rough on me. But then actually realizing that that was depression and then going to go seek help for it. Like yeah. that was the best thing and the strongest thing that I could possibly do. But a lot of times people look at it like, you're, oh, you're a weak. You need, you need help. No, that's what white people go do. <laughs> they, need, they need help because they can't deal with their problems. Uh, nah, nah, no, so no, no. Yeah, yeah, I mean, you got a physical injury, you see a trainer. No questions about that. You got a mental injury, you need someone that can help you with that as well. And, and, and <laughs> that's a race-blind a race problem, that's for sure. Yeah, because I'm telling you, when, so I grew up in Memphis originally. It was only black people and white people there. That was mm -hmm. it. And then, the, and then the Asian people who worked at the, at the Chinese restaurant. That was it. <laughs> nobody else. There were, there were no Mexican Jews. There were no, no, nobody that I knew of, at least. And like I get out to Cali, big melt, melting pot. You learn all these things. So it, it's just a wake-up call, and it's very difficult at, at times. But um, but you talked about humbling yourself. And so a combination of humbling yourself mentally, emotionally, being a husband, a father, all, all of that. How does that work with the fact that you do the majority of cooking at, at home? <laughs> and I know that some men, they're like, no, my, my wife got to be cook, cooking for me, this and that. And we have these attachments to these uh, stereotypically masculine things but like i look at masculinity well I, I i'll ask you what do you look at masculinity as taking care of your responsibilities and and that, that to me that's being a man being reliable being dependable and taking care of your responsibilities if i if i if you give me your word and i know that's good that's being a man it has nothing to do with cooking it has nothing to do with cleaning today this 
garbage disposal that I claimed that I put in. I was struggling with this one part and I called my wife over for some help and I started getting real frustrated because I was given terrible directions and she couldn't understand my terrible directions. <laughs> I was getting frustrated and she was like, let me give it a try. And I was like, this is a moment where I was like, you know, as a man, I'm supposed to repair this. She sits down, punk, punk, pops it right into place. Something that I struggled 30 minutes trying to get it in there. Yeah. And if I was insecure with my manhood, I would have had a problem with her getting, a, getting the biggest part of the garbage disposal done. Um, but, you know, I, I married someone that wasn't going to be part of a, of a traditional marriage where the man goes to work all day, the woman takes care of the kids and cooks, because that's not what I was looking for. I work part-time. My wife works part-time. I cook because, well, mostly because I'm going to eat it all and I want to eat something that I like. Yeah. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cook more and eat it all. Um, but it's just, you know, you figure out what works. And that I don't need a woman that cooks for me like that. Yeah. That see, doesn't make me happy. That See, I, actually for a me, that makes me happy, but I don't expect it all the time. So it gets me. So I'm always super excited when it does happen. And for me, working part-time and working from a home, I take the kids to school a lot of times, pick them up, take to, like, I'm like, soccer dad and it took me a minute to even though like making money all this stuff it was still hard for me to deal with at first and then I had to reshape my my whole thinking about like what what you said about that that's what masculinity really is and that you don't have a skirt on because you yeah, cook I mean or because you pick up the kids and George, I drive a minivan two times a week. You know, I pull into work at a college campus in a minivan because I just dropped three kids off at school. And do I want to be seen like that? No, that's not <laughs> ideal. But do I have a problem with it? No. I mean, clearly I'd rather be in the other car. But yeah. if if I got to pull up in a van because I got kids, then, hey, I'm all good with Listen, that. Listen, my wife just got just got us in a minivan. I, I can't. I can't great. do no, it's not. It's terrible. <laughs> it is horrible. Like I feel bad about, oh, about myself every day I'm in it. Come on, but man. but it's very too. useful. It's functional. Yeah. But you have a minivan power rankings. Huh? Minivan power rankings. Yes, yes. So what so I know that as a Stanford man that you researched these and oh, what yeah. was gonna be the best mini minivan, your top five minivans, who who you got? So we got the Honda Odyssey right now, and, it, and, it, and it's, a, it's uh, five, five, four or five years old. Uh, and at that time, it was the best looking one. But the Chrysler, God, I want to say it's the Pacifica or Pacifica, something Pacifica, like that. that's what we got, yeah. that Pacifica hybrid, <laughs> yeah, bro. Yeah, man, it looked good. I told, I told, uh, so we were, I was dropping my kids off at school, and this lady has one with, with black rims and a tent, mm -hmm. right? Yes, yeah, so we rolling. <laughs> and, and my wife stops her, and she's like, uh, my husband has van envy. And she was like, oh, thanks. We're proud of it or something like that. And the dude behind me is like, said no man ever. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, man, hey, you know how many two by fours and bags of sand and bolts you can throw? Yo, it is super easy to get stuff in and out of it. I, I, I hate that I like that it's so freaking functional. <laughs> <laughs> that's what it's about man i got you got more kids than i do you got to throw them in the van yeah dude that is the best thing to go to costco in you Great. can flat you can lay everything down flat and it's very functional but it's very not functional. sexy 
it's, it's zero sexy, literally zero sexy. But you know, that's right. Taking three kids to school ain't sexy either, but you know, I'm trying to be. Yeah, funny. yeah, exactly. But if you're trying to, you know, you know, uh, feel, feel good, have somebody look at you or something, it ain't going to happen in the minivan. No, that's it ain't. <laughs> it ain't happening. Not at all. <laughs> one, one of the last things before we get you out of here, Greg, um, I know you are a big sports fan. Yeah. And and you've been watching The Last Dance just like everybody else in in America. Yeah. Um I had a big debate on my radio show about my uh the the guy I do it with Brian No. He was talking about, "Oh my god, this is such a big mistake for ESPN. They're they're going to allow cuss words on the network." I was like, "Do you think nobody has heard these words <laughs> before? Yeah. Like are you enjoying it?" Absolutely. And, and I mean, I will take anything that's sports right now. Yeah. I, I, I was talking to my neighbor yesterday and he was, we don't have sports to talk about. He was talking about, he was watching the two guys play Madden on ESPN. I'm just like, man, I can't do that. Like that's yeah, un, that's unacceptable sports behavior. <laughs> uh, so, but I love it, especially for, for people that are our age and older who, I mean, that was, who didn't idolize yeah. Michael Jordan as a kid? Like, yep. I wasn't a Bulls fan, but because of Michael I was. Jordan, I followed the Bulls, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's great to just be able to watch, to be able to see these videos of stories that you heard or never heard about. I just got finished reading the Phil Jackson book, so to have his perspective in the back of my head and then to see these yep. things. And then, um, I'm not sure what episode we're on. My well, buddy said- We had just finished four. My buddy sent me a file of a, of a couple extra bootleg uh, ones. That, so I'm a few weeks ahead. But uh, oh man, hey, it was, hey, it was, hey, it was hey, glorious. Hey, <laughs> hey, shoot, shoot him on over. I might have to hook you up, man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, this Dennis Rodman story, I mean, it's fascinating. This dude in the middle of the season was just like, I gotta go to Vegas. Yeah. And they were like, All right. And go then they it. had to come, and Michael Jordan knew they were gonna have to bring the man back. They <laughs> knew that they were gonna get him. Fish, fish him out of Carmen Electra's bed, boy. <laughs> oh, man, I had to go get Dennis Rodman. And things like that. And, and in the latest debate, this, this is what Twitter has saved, saved my sanity over this pandemic, but people are saying how soft LeBron is and that he would not survive in the era of the Bad Boys <laughs> Bill Lane Beer, who was the biggest, biggest guy on their team physically, yeah. 6'11, 244. LeBron is 6'9, 250. He's bigger, he's stronger, he's faster, he's quicker. LeBron would have been just fine. Just like Michael had to put on some weight to contend with them. I'm not saying they wouldn't have pushed him around, they'll push LeBron around. But the thought that LeBron's gigantic ass at 6'9, 250 couldn't Man, hang with the exactly. pistol, he would have been fine. See, the the a problem that people they they suffer from you know, not being able to like objectively compare eras because LeBron, the, the rules are different now. Mm -hmm. Yes. LeBron flops all it is, but, but when LeBron doesn't want to flop, you can't knock him over with a two by four. Yeah. Like pushes people out of the way. Yeah. He just bullies people. So imagine him playing against them, dude, he would have been doling out punishment. Like his body is equipped. So his mentals would have been different too. He'd have been like, well, I I guess I just got to fight him or run him or run him over. 
Totally agree with you. He might have, he might not be have played as long. His career might yeah. have been shorter. But to think that LeBron's like two fifty would not yeah. have changed the mentality. Plus, in today's game, flopping is rewarded. It is like yes. soccer. You try to get fouls on people by flopping. So that's, I mean, that's that's Dude. not a knock on the player. They're fitting into today's game. Yeah, I'm and truthfully, I think that it's because so so for me, I didn't appreciate LeBron as much as I needed to Mm -hmm. early in his career because I was such a big Kobe guy, Laker guy. Yeah, and you and you had to choose. Yeah, I I grew up a Laker fan, clearly a Kobe guy. Uh, I. I, I used to be a LeBron hater. Let me go ahead and put that out there. Me too. I lived, I, I, I lived in Miami before LeBron got there. There were no Heat fans. I lived in Miami when LeBron got there. Everybody claimed to have been a Heat fan their entire life. And I was lying. Like, so I took it out on LeBron. I was like, man, you, you know. But, uh, and then now he's a Laker, so clearly I got to love him. Yeah. Uh, but, but, I mean, the dude, to have every bit of pressure put on you as a high school student, Saying you're the next Jordan and to literally live up to it yep. with like no major scandals. Yeah, he changed teams. Yeah, he had that stupid announcement, I'm going to South Beach. Yeah. But those are he, his he only He got mistakes. no court cases, no gambling Nothing. problems, no. Nothing. You got a wife. Yeah, he here building, building schools, <laughs> making TV shows. You know, you know, tip of the cap to that man. To, to live up to all that hype, it's amazing. And, and you know, good, good for him. You know, good yep. for you for getting it done. Yeah, because it, it's hard. I mean, because if you really think about it, he grew up in front of our eyes. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, he was not mature and, you know, and knew how to deal with the pressure when he was younger. But uh, he got no problem with that now, buddy. He yeah. like, uh, if I mean, uh, you don't like it, F you. Yeah. You give 20, 30, 40 million to 18-year-old George Reister. You're going to make some bad decisions. I know 18 oh, year old Greg would have made some no, Bro, I'm not building no schools. <laughs> um, bruh, I, I don't even know if I'd be alive. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Like, I'm, I'm barely alive after 11 million, so I can't imagine <laughs> 100 million. Yeah, man. Uh, the So, Greg, man, I appreciate you coming on with us today, man, and, and sharing your story, sharing your life, your family. Uh, your education background. I mean, dude, I just really, really appreciate it and wish you well and you and the family during these crazy times of COVID and all that. So, man, thank you again. Hey, man, my my pleasure, George Reister. It was a good chat. Hey, oh, um, I don't know if this is going to make the podcast. No, well, actually, it it won't. (laughs) This this will be cut out. But... What is this? A bag of goodies? Yes. What'd you get? Oh, that's from that's from the from the happy place. Yes. Yeah, which isn't it great that that's declared an essential business? I know, right? Hold on, right? We need it. Pandemic <laughs> give give anxiety. You need- the thing I love about doing this podcast and talking to people, which I hope that you enjoy as well, is we never know where the conversation is gonna go. I always start out with a list of questions and just like this podcast, we got in the race real quick. Didn't know it was going there. And I thought that Greg offered some really great insight about how we should live our life. Cause he teaches his kids to embrace 
every part of their heritage and every part of their culture because faith is not a big deal to him. So he's like, yo, I want you to understand Kwanzaa, your black side. I want you to understand Christmas. I want you to understand uh, what what the Jewish part of your dad is because that's part of you. I thought that was very, very insightful because if we go about this and embrace other people, not necessarily take on their beliefs and their cultures and all of that, but if we can understand people, then we can operate out of love all the time. I also thought he added a lot of value when he got to talking about white privilege because it's the elephant in the room a lot of times because I thought it was really good that he acknowledged that sometimes people see him and treat him differently because of what they perceive him to be without knowing his family, without knowing any of this. And I think sometimes if it's hard for people to really acknowledge that because it makes them feel like they're guilty of the atrocities of the past. That doesn't make you guilty of it. But I do think it's aware, it's important for you to be aware in situations, regardless of whether you're a black person around all black people and white persons around or vice, vice versa, that it's important to be aware of how somebody else is feeling and how they may be um, in the situation and to embrace them and bring them in. Because he talked about it, the same thing at the University of San Diego, where kids from different socioeconomic backgrounds or ethnicities may not feel comfortable on those campuses. So they're all there for a common cause and a common goal. So if you are a person who has a good heart and it's not about the malice and all of that, then draw people in and don't feel threatened like your heritage or that your customs or anything like, like that are being threatened just by you getting to know somebody else. Because if we're all in this for a common goal, then it should all be a okay i love though how greg talked about his perseverance talked about his perseverance as an athlete and how that's translated over into other uh aspects of his life he was a kid who came out with no scholarships no scholarship offers went to college toughed it out earned a scholarship the hard way well actually all of it's really the the hard way but it's even harder when you have to go to college, pay for college, work, play ball, you don't get fed. Well, you didn't get fed at that time, but now that they can feed walk-ons. Like, that's tough. Got a chance to get beat up every day and, and practice like Rudy. Didn't get a chance to play and then earned himself a scholarship while he's studying at Stanford. And I just love the the effort that it took in that moment and the perspective of saying whoa like man like i am happy to be here because a lot of times we get caught up in the negative circumstances surrounding us and we can't see the positives in that like yeah i'm not starting i'm not playing right now i don't have the job i want my life isn't exactly uh perfect but i do have some good things going right now so if you acknowledge those good things, then you can continue to stack and build those because this is a dude who made it only having 45 catches in college. It's doable. Three time academic all pack 10. Made it. Love that. Uh, he also added value who talking about the girl dad thing. 
Kobe uh, talked about the girl dad, and then after um, he brought it up, it became a hashtag. And Greg didn't really like the commercialization of it and almost the gentrification of being a girl dad. Because we all assume that if you're an athlete, you want a son to follow in your legacy, following your footsteps. But just because you have a boy, that don't mean that he's going to do it. Sometimes it's those girls that pick up that mantle. And he added good perspective on that. I didn't agree with it, but it was very thoughtful. So you guys make sure that you please leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts. Anything that Greg brought up that you guys want to talk about, hit us up on social media. Me at George Reister, him at Catch Camarillo, or you can send an email to gwpodcast at unafraidshow.com. We'll get to it or in the link in the description, you can leave a voicemail. I will definitely get to it and bring it up on the podcast if it is relevant. Um, Please make sure that you share. Peace out. Catch you later.